Invisible world is real. Uh, we say that time and time again, but we believe it. We believe that uh, in this actual geographic space on the planet Earth right now, that there are beings that aren't simply human beings, but there are invisible realities, your Holy Spirit, there are angels, and there are also enemies of our souls um, in this very space. Uh, and we, um, we want to be the kind of men and women and girls and boys who hear your voice, hear your spirit, and none other. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, I'm going to guess Marcus Dickinson. Come out here for a second, because Marcus is a creative writing kind of person. All right? And I'm going to show a front of a Christmas card. I'm going to ask Marcus to give us what he would write on the inside if he was working for Hallmark. Okay? So here's Christmas card number one. All right? Um, I can't even read that. I should have glasses. But it says something like, may the good news and the great joy the angel spoke of so long ago be rekindled in your heart. Yeah, you think of that. And you need glasses, man. I do. So, Marcus, what, if you were a Hallmark, what would you write in the inside? Not the personal greeting, but the printed greeting. Yeah, uh, it's really tough because I think about these things that's way not, too long. Right. Uh, <laughs> so I would want to stand up here for an hour thinking about it. Um, something about... and. I have to think about good news of great joy about your family coming or not coming. I tend to want to have some sort of joke after that. So okay. if this looks very serious, I would write something like that. Okay. But um, I'm, I'm kind of stumped okay. on this one. I'm not next getting anything. One. Next one. Next one. All right. This is just a picture. What would you write in the inside of this card, Mr. Hallmark? Okay. Uh, may you have a very Norman Rockwell Christmas, something okay. like that. All right. Very good. Next one. Next one. All right. This one is... Uh, Right on the inside of that, Mr. Hallmark. Hallmark's definitely not going to hire me uh, for any of these because uh, it takes me too long and they're too snide. Um, so uh, that's a tough one. Uh, and uh, yeah, by the end of the service, I'll have something better. I, I'm, I think actually this one I'm just going to have empty. Like okay, I'm just going to go with that. Yeah, right, we'll it says enough on the front. These have been all real cards. The next one's not a real card, but I'm, I'm suggesting this. All right. It's a dragon, seven heads. It's got a uh, woman who's got light stars around her. It says Merry Christmas on top. Any ideas for this one, Marcus, on the inside? Uh, I think it would be a good seller, okay? I think it would be a good seller. I think it would, too. Uh, Let me, hey, ne next one, next one. Does this help? I had a Christmas tree and a Santa Claus there. Does that help at all? Does that help at all? Definitely. Uh, <laughs> here's hoping your Christmas is better than mine. I don't yes. know. Something like yeah, that. Okay, now, thanks, Marcus. This uh, particular picture actually is from a passage in Scripture which, talk, which talks about the Christmas event, and it's probably a passage that either you haven't read or haven't read with that framework, all right? So, no, I don't think I'd ever want to sell this card or send it to people, but yes, uh, it actually is a behind-the-curtain part of the Christmas story. Now, let me read uh, the Christmas story, as most of us understand it, all right, from Luke chapter 2. I think that's the next. Yeah, Luke chapter 2. Most of you, most of us hear the Christmas story from Luke 2. Let me flip to it. Um, this is the part of the Linus Red and Charlie Brown Christmas. And I'll just start off, I'll just read part of it, Luke chapter 2. And, and, and obviously, I'm not mocking this part of Scripture either. I'm just saying this is, this is the story we most know. 
at the time the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for their census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. And he traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was now obviously pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born, and she gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. But the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, is, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast horde of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. All right, Luke chapter 2. And the rest of the Christmas story that we mostly know is the wise men that came and offered gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And there's other things. If you have a, uh, what do they call it, a creche? One of those things that have all the manger scenes, all the little characters that you like to move around when you were kids and things like that. All right. Now, what we've said at Access, go to the next slide here, Lucas, or Luke. Um, it's not, I, the invisible world is real, and if, you, if your eyes are better than nine, mine, which is 99% of you, you'll notice that this is an open curtain. And behind the curtain, often there's other things going on. And what I want us to understand is, not just in the Christmas story, but behind the curtain of your daily life, of what you see and others see and hear and smell and sense, there's something else going on. Because we say we believe in an invisible world, but sometimes you might ask, and I might think, well, what does that look like? Because right now I see physical people. I see physical people with physical arms, legs, hair, and we hear things that are kind of, a, that can be explained by physics or other kind of audiology issues. But what else is going on here? And look at that today. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 12. We've been doing a, a series of the book of Revelation. We just finished the message of John, which was given him by Jesus through an angel, to the seven churches, which is modern-day Turkey. And it was things Jesus was saying to them, preparing them for what was to come. So if you remember, Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's helping us to see and understand more about Jesus. I'm going to jump ahead. We did chapters 1, 2, and 3. I'm jumping ahead just for the next few weeks, uh, or this week and a few weeks from now, to Revelation 12. This is, again, this is John still writing writing things that this angel had told him that was sent from Jesus, and he's still writing this. The recipients of the, the book of Revelation was still these seven churches in what is now modern-day Turkey. So they were ordinary people just like you and me who were getting this message as encouragement from John, all right? So let's go to Revelation chapter 12, and this is behind the curtain of the Christmas story, all right? I was going to try to get a big curtain and stand behind it, but I thought that would be too much confusion. But this is behind the curtain at the Christmas story. What else is going on behind Luke chapter 2? All right. This is John writing. Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. And you saw the picture we had on my, on my Hallmark proposal Christmas card. She was pregnant, and she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. All right, so far, so good. This fits with Luke chapter 2. It fits with Christmas story. It fits with all of our 
Hallmark, Charlie Brown perceptions of Christmas. All right, next one. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. All right, right now, if you know much of the Christmas story from the Gospels, you remember when Jesus was born, who was the king, the evil king? Herod. He found out something was going on. A king was born. What did he do? He issued this decree that every male child two years and under was to be killed because Herod was threatened by this new king. So behind the curtain, it's the dragon who's ready to devour this newborn child because the dragon, our enemy, knows when God's about to do something, big or small, and he's doing whatever he can do to devour what God wants to start. All right, next one. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod, and her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God into his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness. Through a dream, Joseph was told by the angel, take your wife and son and go to Egypt. Get away from Herod, all right? Where God had prepared a place to care for her for 1,260 days. Next then there was war in heaven. All right. Christmas Eve was uh, Normandy, the beginning of, of a whole new stage of warfare. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. Incidentally, Michael and Gabriel are the only two named angels in the Bible. Just not Bible trivia, it's just Bible knowledge. Maybe just trivia to some of you. And the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. Now, we read that, and some of you, um, yeah, Revelation's symbolic. We know that. It is symbolic. And some of you uh, read, maybe all of us, we read the Bible in what I will call kind of an Americanized Western way where some of the invisible world stuff, spiritual stuff, whether it's angels or demons or Satan or the Holy Spirit, we kind of, we kind of gloss over that, not, not literally, but we kind of like, well, I don't get that, so I'm going to go to the next part. Or we kind of diminish it as like, well, maybe that's in the same category as like the fairy tales I knew growing up. But what John is saying here is a symbolic rendering of a real event. And he understood it that way. His readers understood it that way. The Bible is full of suggestions and understanding where not only angels were real, but demons and Satan is real. All right, now, um, two things I want to say from this. And then uh, this, this this is, for me, it feels like an odd Christmas message. And I don't mean it to be like odd in that sense. But I think... Uh, I want you to know a couple things from this passage, and we're going to look at some of it again in a couple weeks. First thing I want you to know is you have an enemy. The fact that this picture of Satan is waiting there uh, to devour Jesus, and he's waiting at the beginning of what was going to happen. Now, what's interesting, this is not, it was, when I was reading about this, this was not new in ancient literature, this kind of imagery. Uh, in Egyptian literature, there's a goddess, the goddess Isis, who was being fought by a serpent called Typhoon, and she gave birth 
to a sun god named Horus. These are ancient things that happened even before John wrote this. In the Ugaritic, which is Middle Eastern history, the god Baal was fighting a seven-headed leviathan to gain over, over authority and oversight in his own kingdom. In the Mesopotamian literature, there's a god Marduk that also fought a seven-headed animal dragon called Tiamat. And in the Greco-Roman world, the goddess Leto, who was pregnant, fought a snake named Python to give birth to Apollo, who then slays Python. So you might think, okay, if these things all existed in, in myths, ancient myths, you know, Egypt, Ugaritic, Mesopotamia, Greco-Roman, these were mythical things, you know, Hercules and Poseidon. And, then why is John using this in the same way? Because it was a style and it was a story that was repeated over and over in ancient literature and mythology and probably told in those ways. So some might say, well, isn't John doing the same thing here? But what John does absolutely uniquely, distinctively different is he pins a real person, Jesus, right in the middle of the story. And what he does is he's communicating that all these myths and dreams and hopes of the pagan heart for a hero that will finally abolish the evil monster, this is Jesus. And you might, and so maybe you have a hard time relating to that, but let's think about modern day stuff. Think about movies. You have Frodo being chased by the dark riders who are trying to oppose what he has to do. You have Lucy, Susan, Edmund, and Peter and they have the enemy of the white witch because they have a task that the white witch wants to stop. Um, how many of you can name some of the enemies of Batman? I, mean, I went on the internet and it was like, there must be like 50. But the Joker and Bane, when I was growing up watching Batman TV shows, which was old, 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 that's really retro. There was, there was uh, also the Riddler. But we love the shows where there's a hero and an enemy, and then somehow the hero overcomes the enemy, and, and life is all made right again. Dorothy and the White Witch, Little Red Riding Hood, and Big Bad Wolf. Every story we love, not every story, most stories we love. Think of the movies you love, and they're not any different than the Ugaritic or Mesopotamian myth stories. There's a desire for life as it ought to be, there's kind of a hero or a heroine. There's an a enemy, some kind of beast, some kind of evil monster. And then there's some kind of resolution where there's a hero that shows up and the enemy is defeated. And what John is saying here is that story has now come true in Jesus. That's why those stories move our hearts. If you love those movies, it's just like I said about IU basketball. It's, not, it's, it's okay to love IU basketball and get excited and energized about it because God's giving you a shadow of a larger story. It's okay to love Batman and Spider-Man and all, and, you know, Lords of the Rings and all five, six, seven parts of that movie or whatever. It's okay to love those movies and to get caught up in them emotionally. But remember, what God's giving us is a small shadow of a larger story, and that larger story is your story and my story because we have an enemy. You have an enemy, you have a villain, because every story has a villain, and yours is one of them. Now, here's the uh, next one. 
And what, what Satan loves to do in my life and in your life, he wants to destroy the life of Jesus in us. And put on this next slide here, because this is a statement I, uh, that is true, and I'm going I'm to talk about a couple examples in Scripture where this story comes true, or this statement comes true. Any movement toward freedom and life will always be opposed. Any time you begin to do something that God has put in your heart, whether it's stopping a habit you know not to bring in your life, whether it's trying to change the, the uh, trajectory of your marriage relationship and making it more reflective of the spirit of Jesus, whether it's trying to forgive somebody who's hurt you, whether it's trying to be generous when you haven't been, whenever God is trying to do something new in you, you will, you will, you will, you will hit opposition. Now let's think through the stories of scripture. All right, when Moses was born, and he was going to be the one who would set the people free out of Egypt. Who was the enemy in that story? Pharaoh. Pharaoh wanted to kill the young boys. But maybe behind the curtain what was really going on is Satan knew what Moses could become and he was afraid of that. But at the very beginning of the work, Satan tried to kill it. Nehemiah. They were all in exile. Nehemiah was, let, was the one called by God to go back and rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem that would, in doing so, would indicate the stability and the strength that God wanted for his people. Within the first few days and weeks of them rebuilding the wall, there were three or four men, Tobiah, Sanballat. There were some men who ruthlessly mocked, intimidated, and threatened Nehemiah because they wanted to stop the work of God at the onset. Think about Jesus, like we just said. When Jesus was born right away, Herod is moved by something behind the curtain to stop the work of God. When Jesus was getting ready to start his public ministry, Satan jumps in to tempt him in the wilderness. Anytime you begin something to respond to something God's done in you, expect opposition. Expect it. Now, I'm not saying expect it and fear it. I'm not saying expect it and so don't do it. Because I think what the challenge is this is, um, I think I've mentioned this before, but the moment I can think of times where I decided, okay, I want to try to change this, the nature of my relation with my wife. I want to move it toward a healthier place. I need to make some, we need to make some movement. The orbit we're in maybe isn't yielding the life-giving way of life we say we want. And there's a few habits or things we need to talk about or whatever. And that may be something that God's planted in me. It's the seed. It's something that's pregnant in me. I begin to go into labor, so to speak, and I'm trying to figure out how do, I, how do we make changes in this. And I guarantee you, the very time when I'm trying to have some conversation or engage something in my wife, something in me will get triggered or her or whatever, and, and we, we argue about toast or something stupid. You know, you begin to think you want to become generous, and so you start thinking, we're going to give more to the church or more to missions or more away to people. Now my water heater just broke down, so I really can't give that away. Or, and now, am I saying that Satan is down in my basement kicking my water heater around? No, I don't think so. But am I saying he's not? I don't know. I just know that Satan will oppose any movement that God wants to do in you to set you free. The moment that God is putting in your heart, think of somebody right now, everybody, think of somebody right now that has hurt you, that you have a difficult time forgiving. Or is just an irritable person you have a hard time even liking. All right? And let's say there's something, put, put, put a face in your mind, all right? And let's say 
that you've had senses before of, okay, I think God wants me to do this to step toward them. Whether it's a forgiveness step, a generosity step, a mercy step, something that will move your heart more toward them and bring the life of God on them through you. You get ready to take that step, something else will come up. Someone else will hurt you. They will throw another rock at you, and it will be Satan's way of saying, see, don't even go there. So whatever step that God's asking you to take, whatever seed he's planting in you of something new he wants to do in your life, we often have New Year's resolutions. I'm not talking about resolutions. I'm talking about new things that God's calling you to do. What I'm saying is, if it's meaningful and worthwhile and life-giving and it's going to lead you to joy, freedom, and hope, and strength, and forgiveness, you're not going to step across that line unopposed. And then you might think, well, okay, then what do I do? Do I, what does that look like? And on the next slide here, one of the things that, and I'm going to explain this in, in a second, that, what John does is he explains that we have a hero that's not a mythical hero. It's in Jesus. Because the next part of the passage goes on like this. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. This is after the war started, all right? There's a war started because of something you're going to start doing that God's prompted you to do. That's going to bring life and wholeness and healing and forgiveness to you and others, all right? So there's a war started right over that issue. Then I heard, John says, a voice shouting across the heavens, it has come at last, salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, Satan, and sisters, has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. Next one, there's a couple on this one. And they have defeated him by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much they were afraid to die. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in the heavens rejoice. So I was working on this this week, and I thought, okay, we have a hero. But then my next thought, which maybe some of you are having, here's my next thought. Okay, so now what do I do? So you're saying I have a hero in Jesus. He wins the battle. You know, his blood overcomes Satan. And again, I'm not saying that in a diminishing way. So how do I... I mean, if, if my water heater breaks down when I'm wanting to be generous, or if my wife and I have a fight over something silly when we're trying to move toward intimacy, do I just... Remember that the blood of Jesus is victorious and that makes it all go away? Is it like some magical formula? I think everybody knows what I'm talking about. Because when, when you hit those points, when you hit that opposition, I mean, I, mean, I would encourage you to pray. But at the same time, some people have over the mindset, if you just say Jesus in a loud enough, religious enough sounding way, that will make the bad things go away. But what do you do then? How do you... Have, how do you engage in spiritual warfare in a way uh, that will lead you to break out of the opposition that's, a face, that's facing you? And here's, my, here's one thing that I've done lately that I think has been helpful for me because I think I've realized I can't fight those battles. I have to let Jesus. And again, you might think, what does that mean? Here, here's, here's some things I've done lately. One of the things, there's been things happen in my life in the last year Good things, but also some things where I've become sad about. All right? My understanding is a lot of times in the context of our sad hearts and hurt hearts, we end up choosing lesser idols other than God to give us relief from that sadness. So there's times lately where I'll be laying awake in bed, and I'll simply, and I will say it out loud to Jesus, and I'll say, Jesus, I'm feeling sad lately, and I need you with me right now. Now, you might think, well, what does that do? 
But in, what, what it does is it, it, I admit my sadness. I'm inviting Jesus into this and in, in, in to be with me in that situation. And I'm not alone in my sadness looking for some idol, something to give me relief from that sadness. Sometimes I've also in the last year, there's times I've, I've actually said out loud to Jesus, Jesus, I'm feeling anxious right now. I'm anxious. Well, if you sit in your anxiety long enough, you will move toward some lesser idol to relieve you of the anxiety. So I've gone to telling Jesus, Jesus, I'm anxious. Will you be with me in my anxiety? Help me understand what I do next. So I'm inviting Jesus. There's been times in the last year where I've said, Jesus, I'm angry right now. And I know when I'm angry, I will tend to do things that will not lead to life and goodness and joy, but I'll, I tend to do things that will lead to hurt and isolation and separating people from each other. So there's times where I say, Jesus, I'm angry right now. I don't even know what to do with it, but I need you with me right now. And what I'm saying is I need you. I'm fighting this battle. I don't want to be alone. And I think sometimes, I know sometimes, we've, we've fought battles alone. But I also think this, there's things we do where we acknowledge, okay, whether it's situations of feeling hurt, angry, sad, anxious, whatever. Sometimes those are the points where you need to invite Jesus to be with you because then those battles are no longer fought alone. And um, there are people here, I know there are, there are people here who are in the midst of incredible spiritual battles. And it's not like you're, you're not battling, you're not like wrestling dark demons in your bedroom at night, literally. But you're battling some really deep issues in your life that you can't seem to break out of. And what I'm saying is Jesus wants to be with you in those battles. Don't wait till you're better and whole and cleaned up till you invite him back to join you. Invite him in the midst of the, of the battle. Don't wait till you are cleaned up. Let me pray. I'm going to pray. Jesus, uh, the Bible tells us that you're victorious and that you make us victors. You make us overcomers. And Jesus, just uh, as I'm standing here and many of us are sitting here, some, I'll be honest on my behalf and I'll be honest on behalf of many others here, sometimes we're not even aware that the war is happening around us. Sometimes we fall into self-condemnation and guilt and we blame all of ourselves for all the problems when maybe there's an attack and an accusation coming from Satan that we haven't even recognized. God, would you give us awareness of that? Would you give us an alertness of that? And along with being alert, would you also give us the wisdom to invite Jesus to be with us in those moments? God, we don't live life alone. We don't live an isolated life. We don't just do Christianity on Sunday from 1015 to 1130. So, Jesus, would you be with us in those moments? Would you give us a heightened sense of awareness of when the battle is starting and how it's affecting us, most likely in ways we haven't even been aware of to this point? And, Jesus, we also are grateful as we about to prepare to take communion here. We're grateful... Uh, that you did break the stronghold of Satan through your death and resurrection, and that you offer us a whole new and living way to become the kind of life-giving, strong, good people that we know you've designed us to be. And you gave your body and you shed your blood for that, and we're grateful, Jesus. And we ask this all in your name. Amen.
Hey, we finish every Sunday at X.